Hey, we almost forgot our competition that is starting now. You can win a couple of retro games from CinemaRare Retro or Pawnsoft if you submit your video game story. What does this mean? This means like, for example, when you were in the warehouse as a kid and copied games or something and the workers there back in the 80s, 70s or so had no idea what you are doing because they have no idea about computers or about your copy party or whatsoever. Um, so sub um, submit your story with pictures about video games that you had as a childhood, as a youngster to C64 TV slash submit dash story. And there you get a form where you can write your story and attach a couple of photos and Everybody that participates until April 1st, 2018, has the chance to win one of the games. So since we have a couple of games, there will be more than one winner. And of course, the prizes are giving out randomly. So take your luck and submit your story to c64.tv slash submit dash story. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm AJ, Yurik is over there, welcome to the podcast, that means that this is Scene World. Once yes, again. a world of the scene. Coming off of our holiday hangover about now in the US, Thanksgiving should just be about over, oh. I'm guessing, I don't know, since this isn't live and we do this a little bit before we release it, obviously, um. I don't know what holiday it's going to be. Could be Thanksgiving. Could be. It's not going to be Christmas. That's that's down the road. <laughs> All righty. In, well. in a minute, we're going to be talking to David Fox. David Fox is here to talk about things like Thimbleweed Park. He's a programmer. He's a game designer. He's been part of Maniac Mansion and all he's that He's a other. hamster killer. Yes, he's the guy with the hamster. Responsible for the hamster in Maniac Mansion. So we're going to get to the bottom of that in a little bit. Before that, we should probably do some news. It's been a while, I feel like, since we've done this. Wow. Yes. Well, news. The um, Mega Drive Classic Mini, also called Mega Drive Flashback mm -hmm. HD, has been released. Yes. And um, by AT Games. And the thing is, you know, there was a first version, and the first version had the issue of undetecting the um, PAL NTSC thing correctly. So when I plugged in my German Dune 2 cartridge, which is PAL, of course, then yes. it would happen that, the that there was a message coming, this is for the European version only. 
I'm like, okay, so this is the European version. I'm I am European. This is the European market. I put the console on PAL and it still would say it's NTSC. So bad luck. That's um bad. yeah. So that was totally useless and I returned it within a day. Then they released a second version, which is um, the same as the RetroGen FireCore that is a portable Mega Drive. And they use the same games inside, the same software, the same menu, same console, just not portable. And this second version actually doesn't have this PAL and NTSC issue, but it has extreme bad sound emulation, extremely bad. It makes you cry when you hear it because it's so bad. And actually, I actually have a recording on that on YouTube seven years ago because I couldn't believe it. So when we record this, I, I will send you the link. You can put it in the recording so people can listen to it, how it sounds. really awful. Um, then this flashback thing, third version, also from AT Games. So how is it doing? Sound emulation on Japanese NTSC and American NTSC is beautiful. You know? The games inside, eh, not very good. But uh, um, the cartridge port works. The way it works is it seems to have a list inside where it's detecting what game is inside and whether it's compatible when they tested it and whether it's really? not. Yes. They claim to have tested it with, with over 500 games. And um, and if you, for example, if you put in Virtual Race, which is the only game that actually uses a 3D ship, what, what game? Um, ritual race. Wheelchair race. Ritual. We are racer. Oh, oh, oh! Virtual, virtual. I, th- I thought you said virtual wheelchair race. race. It's like that's no. a little bit politically incorrect. Well, there are wheelchair races. I have, okay. I have, I've taken part in wheelchair races. Yeah, me too. That's when I was good, a child a, in school. That's a good idea for a game. I think maybe we should. <laughs> Well, so anyway, so anyway, if the game is known to not work, it will simply ignore the game in the cartridge port. Hmm. Yeah. So okay. what happens with with PAL games since I'm European? What happens there? Are you so European? I, Are you really? Yes. You're not. You're not just faking what? it. No, I'm not. Not. You're really, really. He lives in like. He lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> no, just, I'm not even. I'm not even sounding native. <laughs> he's faking. You're fa- he's faking the accent. And yeah, good. Well, no, once once we stop recording, he's all like, "Yo, gonna do a podcast here." <laughs> Mamma mia! No, uh, that was a different game. Um, oh, inside joke. Ooh. Um, yes. So anyway, so what happens if you put in an European cartridge? And that's the interesting thing. It will slow down the cartridge to 50 hertz, but some instruments of the music of the games will play too slow. Mm. 
I wonder how is that possible? So, for example, um, Lotus 2, which is um, a Lotus Esperate, which is also a classic game on the Amiga. Right. Um, and the funny thing is, is the the, uh, the second Lotus on the Mega Drive is the first Lotus, and the second lo um, and the third Lotus is actually the second on the Mega Drive. Right. So, like, totally messed up. Um, yeah, but, but now, what do you mean by some instruments play too slow? Yeah, it's like it's like at the beginning of of um, of Lotus, you have like, you know, it's like. Um, slowly fading in and then the drums are starting and the snares, you know? And at, as soon as the drums are starting and hitting, you know, they are hitting too slow. And like, then... Like out of time? or the, the Yes. Oh. Yes. And then the music is slowing um, down. sounding like it wants to catch up, you know, with the timing of the other instruments, and then suddenly, for a fraction of a second, the music is playing too slow. Huh. And then, um, a second, a few seconds later, the music will be fine again. So it's like if you have, if your computer is overloaded and your, your um, video is too slow and the audio is in advance, it will try to catch up. That sounds. It's, it sounds like emulation. Like it's. It's trying to. But this is. This isn't an emulated system, right? Is this FPGA? Or what is this? I have no idea. But I think it's emulation because oh, it's cheap. Okay, then it's. Yeah. All right, then it's probably just. Just crappy emulation then. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what I assume. Yeah. And this is exactly the same problem what you would have with an emulator if your PC is too slow. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, so, um, th that's really, really, um, not that good, unfortunately. Well, it has scanline option and the scan lines emulate are pretty decent. It has, um, a fast, um, rewind button. So you can actually rewind the last 30 seconds hmm. and you can replay that, um, that moment. If you if you fell down and lost your life, that's cool. Uh, it has a safe game and loading feature, and the way the cartridge slot is actually working is, it's dumping the cartridges to the memory hmm. okay. before it's 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 loading the game. Okay. So that means no contact issues once the cartridge has been read by the system. Hmm. It's not like on a normal Mega Drive NES or Super NES that or Famicons that the game would crash while playing because of contact problems. Yeah. That's not 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 happening. So it's the same like the Retron Five. It's using the same method, dumping dumping the cartridge before it's actually running the game. Right. To oh. avoid any contact issues going to the age of the cutters. That's pretty good. I have no idea why they made the PAL emulation so way off. 
it's probably not affecting people who are like you know normal customers they don't remember or they didn't notice right right yeah but yeah, of yeah. course i know how it's supposed to sound you know me it's always damn pedant yeah always making me mad if if something doesn't sound right um okay right. so so and the Oh, other news, yes. other news. Yes. The Mark II has been shipped to me by Jens Schoenfeld. Oh, yes. Unfortunately, I couldn't try it yet because my power supply is missing. I actually oh. borrowed I actually borrowed the first um, um, uh, reloaded C64 that I bought two years ago to get the SID FX in. Yeah. And now the power supply is missing. I don't know where I put it. So I just ordered um, a new one. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of SID effects, um, they've just announced that a second batch is being produced of the SID effects chip, which should be shipping uh, in. They're, they're going to begin shipping it in November of 2017, which is right now. So, can um, you still pre-order them? I don't think it's pre-order. I think it's just to order them now because they're 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 supposed to be making another. Ba- they're making another batch, which is pretty cool because you have one. I've got one. It is, and if you. If you paid attention to the beginning of the podcast, this will be the first podcast where I'm using music. The, the theme music was played through the SID effects with a 6581 R4AR on one side and an 8580 on the other. Wow, so we are actually using real hardware now. Yes, yes. No longer emulation. Well, the, no, actually the theme song in the beginning of the podcast was on real hardware. It was just on a... 6581 on a C128. It was just a stock one SID thing. But okay. now it's got the dual with with both going at the same time through you know different channels. Hmm. So cool. so if you want to rewind cool. and listen to that again, that ah, that's because cool. it's it's cool because I don't know if you've noticed this about it, but I keep mine in single in mono mode most of the time, but with like the left channel being the 6581 and the right channel being the 8580. And even though it's playing the same thing, it sounds like like stereo because they sound so different with certain songs. I know, I know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's real cool to hear it like that because it adds kind of like this extra depth. I know, I know. So, you know, so that's happening. They're, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a, new, a new batch of them. I highly recommend so, them. They're very cool. Hey, if you... If you want money for Christmas, now you know there are three things to get. Jens Schoenfeld Mark II Reloaded C64, the Flashback Mega Drive or Mega Drive Classic Mini, however you want to call it, and the SIDFX. I got hey, something cool else. Stuff. I got something else to get to, to get too, um, which, uh, which will take place as soon as my dog stops barking. La 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 la. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So, um, so I got another thing that 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 people can get and, and should check out, which is um, the FPGA SID project. Yeah, you told about it in the in the last podcast before Did the I? last one. Did I? Yes, you said you said it's the first project that aims to make the sound listening exactly like on the real SID. Did I actually say that? God, I don't yes, remember. you did. Good yes, Lord. you did. Yes, I'm we have so, it in my our mind new is, My mind is so gone. Either way, 
This, but I don't. I we don't have a we don't have a link to that. We no. didn't have a link to that. Well, I will we'll put a link to that in, in the description here. It's it's www.fpgacid.de. The point of it is to create Yeah, the point of it is to create a, a pin compatible drop-in replacement for the 6581 and the 8580. It's supposed to be a cycle exact. Uh, if there's videos online where you can see. You can see it playing like two and three SID songs, and it's got basically two SIDs built into it. You know, so it's it has stereo sounds built in. So and the, the German, it's the German project yeah. from yes, Stuttgart. Right, that's like that's like two hours away from me. Yeah, and and it handles you know the the paddles and and the mouse and all that stuff. So which is stuff. Yeah, that you the, mentioned that. Yeah, that that, that, the, that the Swin yeah. SID does not handle that. Most SID replacements can't deal with that. So this is a really cool thing. Um, I'm actually on the waiting list for it. They said that it should be available in 2018. So that oh, you can be... sign up for a waiting list. I did. Yes. Where? How? Um, there's on the page. Oh, somewhere. reservation. Yeah. They're here to start reservation. Yes. So cool. I've already I already signed up for that. So that's that's going to be uh, that won't be in this machine because this this beautiful machine next to me has a. Has has the sit effects in it, but yeah, I have mine a, too. I have but, a one twenty eight that that could use one of these, and I'm also curious whether you could put one of these in the sit effects. Yeah. So we, I do know that you can put one of these in um, one of the um, expansion port things, like the Sid Symphony, because I've seen video of it being done to in order to play, you know, like like three and four Sid songs. So that's. That's something you can do with it, um, but yeah. So that's select how much you would want. You can you can um, you can put up to twenty. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, because that's totally an amount that someone would need. I smell expensive resellers on eBay. That's what's <laughs> happening all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've they've also they've partnered with some web stores that are willing to sell it. So that so it should be available sort of commercially, whereas the SIDFX was a limited run, and I even think that the second batch is going to be a relatively limited run. This thing should kind of go into perpetuity as you know as a as a commercial product, which isn't that neat. And the, oh, and, and different here is I just which uh, I just registered. And said, "I want to pre, I want to um, reserve." And it says the reserva reservation is binding. What's so that? you have to. It says the reservation is binding. Yes. So you have to pay it once it's out. Yes. That's that's an exception. Yeah. I mean, mostly pre-orders are like you you cast your interest. Right, 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 right. But some people hop off and say, "I don't want it anymore." Yeah. But he says you have to. Yeah, you have you, to take. If you, if you look interested, then you, by God, you're buying it. That's you a know, that's a first. Coming to your house and backhanding you. Well, he can. I'm living two hours away from him. <laughs> so what else? Funny. What else? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so why we didn't put a link in that last time because i didn't know that that there was a homepage about it. Oh. Well, <laughs> now now we do now we do know um 
yes so as i said um pretty awesome stuff yeah. this this um oh my god i need a second job for all this Friggin awesome tell me stuff. about it tell me about it yeah we're, we're we're in we're in um we're in special times now when we can actually do things. you know it, it's i've got this machine set up next to me and i've got it set up to um basically the specs that i had when i got rid of it in 2000 2001 whenever i stopped using the c64 and if i had the stuff now that i had then i could have kept i wouldn't this. have stopped yeah. exactly i could have kept this going for another couple of years well this is the retro general interest nowadays the resources are one cheap enough second you can make kickstarter or indiegogo and find enough people being interested in it the retro hype yeah that started like in 2010, so seven years ago, mm -hmm. actually turned into something good. On the other hand, a rare stuff, old stuff that is not produced anymore is super expensive now. Yeah, right. That's the negative side on it. So you can't go and find a cheap, um, you know, a cheap copy of Terrican anymore. Right. Or whatever, you know, or Gianna Sisters or, you know, Tetris, because, you know, I found it in my attic. I'm like, ah, oh, come on, let's put it on eBay. Now everybody's Googling it and looking on eBay. What can I demand? Yeah, for I it, know. You know. Yeah, right. Speaking of software, uh, Andrew just put up a video of unboxing Planet Golf by Cytronic Software. Um, and since this is an audio podcast, you can't see this, but you can you can hear. I got my copy of it. Andrew beat me to the punch because he got his long before I got mine. But, uh, but man, still haven't ordered mine. Yeah. They do not skimp at all on this. On this, I know what they're giving you, man. It's it's like I know. Psytronic is totally great on that. It, it's, it's amazing seeing this and seeing it in you know, seeing a commercial C sixty four release in this. You know, you know, nice plastic jewel case, and the thing is in there with professionally printed disc labels and, and, and everything. It's like, I thought these days were over, but no, they're still there. Nope, they are coming again. Yeah. And on Friday, Andrew actually released on our YouTube channel Argus mm -hmm. unboxing and review too. Yes. So, I still haven't played mine. I will do that tonight. This is actually... So it's it's not, Planet Golf is actually a really good game too. Um, although I can't get past the boards that has a little alien walking around because I can't stop hitting the ball at him just to watch him go because he he <laughs> he just gets angry when you hit it and that just makes me want to hit him some more. <laughs> and it's got a pretty awesome intro as well. If you look at the the second side, the um, the uh, you know uh, the story till now that like they did not. They didn't screw around with that intro. Yeah, yeah. You 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 saw it right with the like the footage of like the moon landing and stuff. And I know. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, so uh, perfectly great. Yeah. So, lots of stuff still coming out. Lots of yep coolness yep. on this machine. Yep. So, guess that that's all the news we have for now. Okay. Good. People should check out if you've got a C64. My, by the way, um, Q-Link still exists. Well, it's, you mentioned that in the last. I podcast, know, I yes. know, I did, but I'm going to push people again that they should really check it out because 
because more people should be on it and development needs to continue on it because it could be really cool if people do that great so that's 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 all that's all i'm gonna say uh, just remember wanted to go 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 look at that well that was pretty straightforward yes well prepared we didn't have to look up for the news yeah i had a list in front of me wow i didn't <laughs> I've, been, my... I've been cultivating news for the for for in my spare time for the last uh okay. couple of weeks as i've struggled to get through my daily life okay so enjoy the interview with david yeah fox, here's david man. fox over here waiting and we're going to talk to him now and find out some interesting stuff well so thanks for taking the time good thank you're welcome so would you like to start the podcast uh welcome aj yeah yeah well, I think we just did start the podcast. Uh, we're, we're talking to David Fox. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you guys? Pretty good, pretty good. And I guess the number one question that we should probably get out of the way first off is, what have you got against hamsters? Well, I like hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, that was an opportunity that I just couldn't, I couldn't pass up. It was not, it was not planned. It was something, uh, I guess, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, there was this little little bit in Maniac Mansion that you could do with the hamster that's not part of the gameplay that just seemed like something that I had to do. So without telling Ron about it, Ron Gilbert, who was the main, who was the designer on the game, main designer, along with Gary, um, I asked Gary to get me some some artwork of blood, a bloody door of a microwave oven, <laughs> and, and then. Um, Decide to let let you put have at least like one or two of the characters who were more edgy than the rest were willing to put the hamster in the microwave and turn it on, and it was um, it actually turned into a possible death if you were to give the the remains of the hamster back to the uh, to Weird Ed, the owner of the hamster, then you you get killed, and that's the end for you, for that character. So. Um, uh, it was it was kind of a little in joke mostly for us. I wasn't sure if anyone would actually try it. <laughs> and I guess once once the news got out there, um, it it became very widespread. Um, it was not. Um, I, I don't think Nintendo ever discovered it. I mean, they had us go back and and make all sorts of changes, or you know, kind of sexually oriented, like you know, cover up the uh, the the mummy calendar image, this image of a, of a calendar with a, with a mummy on it and a whole bunch of other things like that. And I don't know that they ever knew about the hamster. Maybe they did eventually, but not, not in the first pass because mm. it's not part of the gameplay and it's not required to, for anything to happen. It's just like a, a little in joke. Right. Interestingly is you were, um, employee number three of Lucasfilm games. I've read. That's true. Yes. Um, I was the, um, I happened to be, I live in Marin County, which is the same place where Lucasfilm was based. And a year before uh, the games group started, um, I was working on a book on computer animation and ended up talking to um, a bunch of the people of, at the Lucasfilm computer division. I got to hang out with them and ask some questions. Um, Alvary Ray Smith, who was the one of the co-heads of the group, ended up um, proofreading my book for technical accuracy in terms of the high-end computer graphics at the time. 
um, got a bunch of imagery in it. And so I, I kind of, you know, it was a great opportunity. I got to meet them and got to hang out with the people. I went to SIGGRAPH and, and um, spent some time with them there too. And a year later when I finished my book, um, this was primarily um, for the Atari 800. I had to do computer animation on the Atari 800. And, and, but the book, by the way, is someone scanned it and the whole thing is online. So you could just look at it. Uh, every, every page has been scanned in. Um, I heard from a friend of ours that Lucasfilm was about to start a new games division. And I immediately called up Ed, Ed Catmull, who is the head of of computer games group, or, or sorry, head of the computer division, which is where the games group would be based. And he had just hired Peter Langston, who was the, going to be the manager of the group. And he said, well, as soon as Peter actually comes on board, I'll pass your name on to him and he can bring you in. So I got in for an early interview and I think it took three months before he actually started, you know, made, made the offer. But I was the I was the first person he hired from the outside. There was another guy named Rob Poor who was already a member of the computer division who transferred over to our group. So I was like the third person in the group. It was the first game designer, I guess. And wow. and that was it was it, the the I mean the the serendipities kind of lined up, and the fact that I was working on this book. Um, on computer animation, dealing with the Atari, that I already had these connections with these people at Lucasfilm Computer Division. Um, the the fact that Atari was the company that funded the computer games group originally with a million dollars. Um, so we knew that the first games we were going to do were going to be for the Atari 800. Um, and that was my background because of the book I had just finished writing. And here's the manuscript. Here's the manuscript of the book I had just finished it. And here's where we're going to do this. Um, I was local, um, enthusiastic, and um, Peter was actually looking for people who did not, who were not in the games industry already. So he didn't really want to hire people from large games company because he wanted to kind of start with a fresh start without people having preconceived notions about how to build computer games. So um, everything just kind of lined up perfectly. Um, looking back, I'm still amazed that that happened. But you know, it happened. So I guess I'm kind of used to it now. But <laughs> the other weird thing was that my my wife and I had been running this public access microcomputer center, and um, the way I heard about them starting the games group was from one of our people from the computer center, one of our members who actually worked at ILM was the one who told me about this. So um, uh, it just worked out well. And I, I, it took me a couple of years before I think I stopped pinching myself to say, is this really real? And, and I got a paycheck every couple of weeks. <laughs> that, was, that was the amazing thing. So. so before that, you started writing books and you had experience with the Atari. Yeah. So I, I see computer. I, I wrote a book. Um, see, that was my third book um, on computers. So I, my my wife wrote a book on called Armchair Basic, which I helped her with a little bit, but it was mostly her book. Um, a friend of ours, Mitch Waite, who was a hugely prolific writer of computer books in the late seventies through through nineties, I guess, um, said, "Hey, would you like to write a 
co-write a book on Pascal with me. And so I wrote, we wrote a book called Pascal Primer. And it was a weird thing since I didn't know Pascal. So I, I was writing it as an introductory book, learning the language and, and describing it in the same way we would teach our, do, we do our introductory classes. And that was published by Howard Sams. And then Computer Animation Primer um, also co-wrote that with Mitch. And that was through um, Byte McGraw-Hill books. And um, so, yeah, that, and that was the end of my writing career, just those, those, those parts. But um, it, was, it, was, it was fun to do that. <laughs> Did you know back in the day when you started Maniac Mansion uh, with that scum engine that you would have something groundbreaking there? Um, I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. No, I mean, I, I had just finished working on Labyrinth, um, which was really our first graphic adventure game. And it was kind of a hybrid. I mean, there, there was, um, a point and click aspect to it, but not anywhere as clean as, as scum. Uh, we had this kind of a, what I call a slot, slot machine wheel interface where we had like two vertical rows of, of, um, verbs and objects that you can choose between as opposed to a fixed array on the screen. And and you could click on the screen and pick up objects and do things like that. Um, and some of the tech from that ended up in Maniac Mansion, like some of the sprite animation um, that Charlie Kellner had written and a few other things. Um, and when I ended up working, I mean, Ron and Gary had already designed the game pretty much And Ron said, hey, I just had spent the last year working on this scum engine. Um, could you, you know, maybe give me a month or two to help me code the, the game? I figured that's how long it would take. It was a couple months. And uh, I said, sure, because uh, I wasn't really doing anything at the time. Um, I was kind of between these projects and ended up working on it for like six months and was, the I think, the primary scum scripter on the game so I did a lot of the coding and Ron did the rest um, and it, it was I think Ron and definitely me underestimated how complex the game would be by having to choose from an array of characters in the beginning because um, you had to be able to win with any any combination and it just hugely it, it's just blew it up out of proportion in terms of how much testing had to happen in order to make sure it all worked. Um, so I think I ended up leaving the project um, maybe a month or two, a couple months before it actually was wrapped up. And But then went on to do Zach McCracken, you know, using like version two of, this, of the Scum engine um, with some additions. So by then I had already was very well versed in how to code and, you know, how to do a game and how to do Scum. Um, so it was, I wanted to leverage what I had learned and do do something which was, you know, felt bigger, you know, where you weren't cooped up in one location. So I ended up going so big that I ended up leaving the planet. <laughs> so we ended up with, with Mars and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what I just wanted to say. So despite Maniac um, Mansion was more work than you originally thought it would be, you made, you made even a bigger game called Zach McCracken. <laughs> yeah, well, it, in some ways, Zach was not bigger because there were your, you had four characters you could control, but they, that was set. 
so we didn't have to go through and have all these combinations of characters. Um, so that so I, I took the the multi you know the, the repeat playability of Maniac Mansion where you could play it multiple times. It kind of stretched into one longer game, so it was all there. Um, so you probably get most of it through one gameplay. Um, in terms of time wise, I think they're probably equivalent. Um, there were more probably more rooms in Zach because we came up with this thing we call it pseudo rooms, which were which is what I used for the, the mazes and um, for the airports where you basically have one set of artwork. We have one set of artwork and then you um, kind of change some variables. So it was like a virtual different virtual rooms using the same imagery, but inside the game state it, it treated them as totally separate rooms, but we're using the art. And, and of course back then when we used a couple of floppy disk sides on a Commodore on a Commodore sixty four, um, having a way to reuse stuff like that was really important. Um, so it's like like the airports, you know, there's a basic airport design, but then I could turn on and off like what kind of airplane was in the background and what kind of um, you know, a couple other pieces of imagery, some signs and things like that. So it, it looked essentially the same, but, but a little different for each one. Um, the mazes, I probably got totally carried away with those. Um, that, that was the one thing which I, which I regret about the game is that there were so many of those. And, and um, you know, if I, I started dreading having to go through play testing and, and figure out my way through the mazes, I figured that the, players were probably just as pissed off how you do that um, well there there is one workaround for the mars maze you just go left all the time and uh -huh. in some minutes 30 20 doesn't matter you are out no matter what. eventually eventually yeah i don't think that was intentional maybe that works in all mazes i don't know <laughs> um the the jungle maze um there were, I think I used that a couple times. Those were, were totally random. There was no way to map those, so you, you just had to keep going. If you if you backtracked, you would it would um, keep you stuck forever. But if you kept going forward, I think after going through a certain number of, of rooms, you'd you'd be out. So those are, you know, those were not really mazes as much as um, just something to make you feel like we're, something to connect you between the airport and the location you're trying to get to. Oh, you should have told me that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah. But if you look at the hint books, I think the hint books are probably online. You know, all the mazes are mapped, so you could actually figure out how to how to get through, except for the jungles because they, they can't be mapped. Well, well, I played them at the beginning of the '90s before I had internet, so. <laughs> yeah. He had to do it dry. Yes, <laughs> without any help. Um, one thing that really annoyed me all the time about the airports was the code section. Mm. That really annoyed me a lot. You had to enter a code every time. I don't know. I felt it a bit exhausting. But of course, I understand it's because That's of copy protection. Right, yeah. that was the copy protection. Yeah. And I think I did it so that you only had to do that for international flights. So if you if you take a flight within the United States, like to Seattle or to Miami, then you didn't have to. But if you left the country, then you would. And that was kind of a figure. Okay, so someone could um, 
essentially steal the game, end up with a, a, a demo because they could play around within the United States without needing the codes. And if they left, they would need it. Of course, the code, you know, people scan the, the books, even though we, we print them in on this like dark red paper that was supposed to make it very hard to photocopy. You know, you yeah, scan them. So do and that. some German versions even had dark brown, which made it even harder to read. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hated that. I, I'm sure. I know it was hacked. And then we had we had the pirate jail um, cutscene. If if you entered enter the wrong code, like was it five times in a row, three times? If you misentered it, then you ended up um, being thrown into pirate jail in Kathmandu and given a lecture for stealing games <laughs> for pirating <laughs> software. Um, that kind of came from, I mean, there's, we had this experience early on, um, on, on the first game I did at Lucas, which was rescue on Fractalus. Um, the, both that, both that game and Ballblazer got pirated, um, before the games were released. And okay. I think, I think, we aren't sure we couldn't prove it because we were naive enough to not serialize the discs, but we gave the discs to Atari's marketing department for them to review and figure out how to um, best market them. And within a week, they were on all the message board, all the bulletin boards, uh. pirate boards. And, and, and due to other things, the games got delayed and Atari got sold and a whole bunch of stuff happened. So the games actually didn't come out officially for like another year or two and so by that point everyone uh who at least for the atari version everyone who wanted to play it could you know easily have had um you know that you could tell by someone just to the game by the pirated the name on the game for the pirated versions were different than the final versions the pirated versions i think for rescue were either ball blazer or rescue mission which were working titles uh, before we came up with Rescue and Fractalus. So when someone refers to the game by that name, I know they were talking about having played the pirated version. Same thing for Ballblazer. I think it was uh, Ball Blaster was a pirated name. So if they refer to it as Ball Blaster, we know that was um, the pirated version instead of Ballblazer. Um, and when I was in around 1990, when I was, we were trying to expand our um, array of, of scum programmers. We ended up hiring a bunch of people. So um, we had already done a couple of scum games and we realized that we needed more scum programmers to help us do more. So we started, we were going to do something called Scum U and Scum University. And we we're looking for a bunch of new programmers who who we could train and we were looking for people who had some programming ability, but we were much more interested in their, their senses of humor because we knew we could teach people to code, but not teach them how to be funny. So, um, I was interviewing a bunch of resume, going through a bunch of resumes and one of them really popped out, which was from Tim Schaefer. And he had sent in essentially a comic strip of a, of a resume showing um, him actually coming in and interviewing with George Lucas and getting a job as a game programmer there. And it was just wildly creative and very risky and I just thought it would be really fun. And during the interview, I asked him if he had played any of our games before. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I played Ball Blaster. 
and which was the pirated version of the game. <laughs> so I said, oh, you paid ball, ball buster, eh? I said, you realize that you do realize that was the pirated version of, of the game. And he just like turned red and got really embarrassed and, and got, he, he was sure that I was going to, you know, not hire him because they had played a pirated version of the game. Um, you know, it's kind of playing with him on that. And yeah, of course that wasn't as much an issue. Um, I'm sure a lot of a lot of people did that. Anyway, that was pretty fun. So he write he wrote about that. It made a it left a mark. Um, I don't think he ever pirated a game after that. <laughs> <laughs> so so he he did the jokes on the insulting in in um, in Monkey Island oh, when he, you do the um, fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no. I think I'm pretty sure that Orson Scott Card did those. Um, uh, Orson Scott okay. Card is is a science fiction writer who wrote Ender's Game and and a bunch of other really great books. And he was working with us off and on. During the 80s, he, he came in and gave us a, a workshop on storytelling, and he was kind of on on call as a, as a consultant and writer. And I think um, Ron had him come up with the insult um, sword fighting jokes, which were complex, as you had to have them. Each joke had to have, you know, two ways to right. work. You know, one in the first part, one in the second part. Right. Um, so it's brilliant. But he, yeah, he um, was also the editor for, of a of a a C sixty four magazine for a while, wasn't he? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, what I'm sure about Tim Schafer was also working on Saul Crystal, a German graphic um, text adventure for um, Starbite Software. So huh. that is where okay. that is where I then where I know the name Tim Schafer from. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, and then um, I know that um, both Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman were the two scumlets, we called them, um, that ended up working with Ron on, on Monkey Island. So he had, you know, he worked, he had them help him um, with the coding because it was, I mean, realized that if you, if you want to get it through, we had to have more people working on it. Um, I guess in the same manner, I had, um, I was working with Matthew Kane on Zach, and you know he he and I pretty much split up all the the scripting pretty much in half. So half of the game was his, and half was mine. And then of course we get together and and work out stuff. So um, it, it it works really well when you end up with someone who has a similar sense of humor or can push you in a certain direction to get a little more edgy. Uh, and uh, we, we had a great a great working relationship on that. He also did all the music for the game. Um, he was also a composer. So that was a, a nice connection because I had no idea how to describe what kind of music I was looking for, but he knew the game well enough that he could just kind of come up with stuff that worked. Mm. Just and, as a quick, and then, a quick jump yeah. back, Orson Scott Card was the books editor for Compute Magazine. Oh. Okay. Just look, just look that up. Good. Oh, <laughs> good. Nice. So, um, according to what I know, you took a break, kind of, in video in in video games, and and the last thing you were um, credited to before Thimbleweed Park was actually Whoop Work, um, the official Whoop Goldberg invention game in 2013. Oh. Right, and and before that was really the first game I had done. Rubeworks was the first game I had done in 
you know, maybe 15 years. Um, there, there was a point um, going back, even before I went to Lucasfilm Games, there was what I really was interested in doing was something much more immersive, uh, more like you know what, what the term in the 80s was location-based entertainment, um, more you know picturing something more like an interactive Disneyland where you'd go someplace and it'd be a virtual experience and you'd be totally immersive and it, you wouldn't just be staring at a screen but you'd be totally in it and this is before virtual reality was imagined as a, at least the term was had would come up but that was essentially what I was picturing was something where you were totally immersed in it and when I first came to Lucas I told Peter Langston, our, our manager, that this is what I really like to do. And he said, well, that sounds cool, but we're going to do games on the Atari 800 now. So <laughs> you have to put that aside. And then when our, our next manager came on, Steve Arnold, I told him too, and he was actually really interested in that. And um, he said, okay, well, you know, maybe we'll get to that at some point because I'd like to do that too. So in 1990, um, after I'd been there for eight years, um, we were growing, um, or the number of people in the group had gotten large enough that it was hard for everyone to report directly to Steve. And so he asked me to take a year off to be the director of operations. And that's that was the period where I was helping to hire people like, like, like Tim and Dave and other people who came on and also put in management at the head of each group and you know, basically help, help run the group. And as a result, I wasn't able to do any games during that period. But he said, if you do that for a year, then um, at the end of that, you can, you know, we're, we have this idea for this location-based entertainment project that you could jump over to. And so for the last two years I was there, I was working in, in a separate group, a small group of maybe six or seven people that was doing a um, kind of a, um, a flight simulator pod experience, working with Hughes Hughes Simulation, which is the company that did professional flight simulators for for um, airlines and for the military, uh-huh. and they did the they did the hardware part, and we did the game and the design part, and had this really awesome prototype called the called the Mirage, and um, I designed a Star Wars game that was kind of like Rescue on Fractalists on steroids. You know, it's like through you know <laughs> we were inside of a um, your, your two-seat vehicle, there's a window in front of you and, and you're looking out the window with a pretty wide field of view, like 120-degree field of view, I think. Um, three video projectors created the imagery and you're looking through a... It was bounced off of a collimating mirror, so it means you were focusing at maybe 100 or 200 feet out instead of right at three feet away from you or five feet. So it looked like you were... You felt like you were flying through this expanse um, of you know of terrain right. and it was a multiplayer we had you know multiple other people flying x-wings you're flying i mean you were flying a tie you were flying an x-wing other people were flying tie fighters and you could do these battles and it was just really really awesome That's um, great. but it was just too expensive at the time to pull off and actually for anyone to actually purchase for a theme park so project got shut down and at that point i couldn't imagine going back and doing games again so i was hoping to end up doing something much more like a vr type experience um 
but it just was too soon. So I ended up splitting off and going doing other stuff that was less game related, more entertainment or education, and um, kind of got back to my roots with Ruworks again. Um, how how did that happen? How did you go back to the roots? Did that happen by accident, or were you like missing your game development years? Well, I, I think it was um, around the time the iPad first came out. I um, decided I could I would want to try to um, code some apps for the iPad and work with my wife Annie, who is also an author, and she had written a series of books for middle school kids and they were graphic novel based books you know she didn't do the art but she wrote the story and i worked with her publisher and got the rights to the art and we turned the graphic novel portion of those three books into into ipad apps and it's called it was the middle school confidential series so i learned how to code for the ipad and ended up you know, publishing those. And after I did the third one, um, I said, okay, I think I know enough now about, about this, that I, I should be able to go back and now do games again uh, for this. And had been thinking about doing a physics kind of puzzle simulator and kind of like a Rube Goldberg. Do you, you guys both know the term Rube Goldberg oh, yeah. machines? Oh, absolutely. So I, you know, I remembered Rube Goldberg cartoons when I was a kid. You know, they were reprints from. I mean, he was, he was mostly popular in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And I was, I grew up as a kid in the 50s, and I don't think he was still drawing cartoons. So it was probably reprints of his older ones. But I remember, you know, looking at these cartoons, showing these chain, these crazy chain reactions, and and you know, if first step a then step b and, and following them and remembering how trying to figure out if i could understand the physical logic of how these things would work so i you know i had a fondness for that and i started seeing these apps come out that were kind of imitations of his work um without without the key humor part of it you know they were just more physics simulators with complex things but they really weren't funny or whimsical and I said, oh, it would really be fun to do a Rube Goldberg-type game. And I searched and found that. You know, I saw all these Rube Goldberg-like games that were out on the App Store. But none of them actually said Rube Goldberg um, because no one had ever bothered to license his right. artwork for a game. So I found a website and for RubeGoldberg.com. And it said, if you'd like to license our artwork, send us an email. So... I wrote this impassioned email on a Sunday night and told what my background was and why I was interested and and figured you know well this this isn't going to happen I'm you know who am I I'm just this lone ex Lucas person um, who doesn't have any money to do anything like this and the next morning I got a phone call from this woman who was very friendly and said yeah I. I love to talk to you about this and you know, we've been approached before but we've never actually done it because it seemed like the people who were who approached us were just doing it for the money they didn't really care about the content oh, but you clearly are really like the content and and uh, i really want to honor my grandfather's memory <laughs> and, and, and i said what your grandfather wow so this was so this is you know rube's granddaughter uh, jennifer and um wow. 
we hit it off really well and and i you know she we became partners on this project and i got the license and um got funding from unity to do the game what an honor wow yeah, yeah. it was and, and and so that was really fun so i i spent uh i probably two years on that you know one year in pre-production when you're doing the game um ended up working with um Kalani Games. Kalani was um, one of our worked with me at LucasArts, and he had a team in Austin because I knew I wasn't going to be able to pick up enough about 3D programming and you know, you know, doing stuff in Unity to do it myself. Mm. And I didn't have a team in place, so I figured it makes sense to work with him. And um, that came out. I'm actually working on it now because now that iOS. Um, we got hit by the 3264-bit switch, mm. and we tried to to do the 64-bit version a couple of years ago, and it just broke something in the game. Pretty and now terribly. you have to look at it again. <laughs> so now I'm I'm, st I'm still going through the the upgrade and and have it open in my screen right now in Unity, going through and, and <laughs> double checking every every room and every every level. But I had a lot of fun doing that, and um, you know. It's the the best part is when I see students using it um, as part of their uh, physics curriculum because they a lot a lot of kids in the U.S. get to build Gobert machines. You know, they design them and they actually build them in class, and they often play the game as a as an introduction into building the the machines because it gives them a really quick way to to think out of the box and to come up with crazy ways to do it. Um, so, so maybe that first game is yours, your app. <laughs> that that was my that's my first game app, Rubrics. Yeah. And, and then, and then while when I was finishing up on that was when um, Ron said that you know tell me about what he was going to do with the movie park, and you know he and Gary had already been talking about that and to do this Kickstarter. And I said, hey, you know, I mean, he he asked me to look at some of the Kickstarter pages before they went live to give feedback and and thoughts about that and i said hey if, if this if this does take off i definitely would be interested in in working with you guys on this so you know after after the i guess the game got funded pretty fast i mean they hit, they hit their initial goal pretty fast so it did um, definitely. Yeah. yeah so he realized that he could afford to bring on other people and so I think during still during the Kickstarter, he announced that I was going to join the project, and Mark Ferrari, who did most of the artwork, um, was going to join. Um, yeah, so that was actually my next thought. Even if if um, even if the um, milestones weren't reached, you you would have joined anyway. You are not doing it for the money. At least that's what I understand during this interview here. You would have done it anyway for the passion, I guess. I think that's true. Um, I mean, I definitely didn't do it for the money. Um, we we got paid, but we got paid at way below what our normal rates were. And I was just doing because it, it was something. I mean, when I think about my time at Lucas, the thing I missed the most was collaborating with these brilliant, funny people. And you know, when you when you when you're off on your own doing stuff, um, it's really rare to find. You know, I, I just could never find people at that level to work with. And so when when Ron said this was a possibility, 
to work with him and Gary again. Um, I was like, wow, this could be really fun. I was a little worried though. You know, I, 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 you know, you build up things in your memory, like, you know, was it really that good or could we, am I still good enough to do it? Could, could we actually, you know, after 25 years, could we get, come together and just, can, you know, pick it up where we left off? And so a little, a little anxious about that. Um, but after the first five or 10 minutes of our first brainstorming session, um, we did together in person, it was like, okay, you know, this, this is falling right into it. This is very familiar and, um, yeah, this is going to work. So it was good. I mean, all my friends in the retro community, about thousands of people on Facebook, it was everywhere. So it really took off. Um, definitely. Um, a funny thing is, by the way, that um, I spoke to Ron about that when we interviewed him. And actually, back in the days, Maniac mentioned Zach McCracken. The German versions were more successful than the English ones. Yep, that's true. And, and even now, I think our I think more of our sales are in Europe than in the United States for this game. And I'm, I'm, I think. I, you know, you know, there in Thimbleweed Park, there are a few, um, few digs towards Sierra Online, and part of it was like this rivalry that we felt towards towards them because they would issue, you know, they come out with a game and they sell ten times as many copies as of any of any of our graphic adventures in the United States, but we would do better in Europe because they they never quite made it into Europe, I guess. Um, they don't think they did translations at the time, at least not initially. So that's where our, our market was, became in Europe. And and Zach, especially in Germany, was is like, you know, huge uh, following to the point where there were several fan-created, you know, sequels or prequels to the game. And, um, it, you know, kind of blew me away when I realized that's where the audience was. I had no idea originally that was the case but that carried I, over with with this game too i guess the most known um successor of zach mccracken by a fan is probably the um zach mccracken sequel made on the commodore 64 in the gary kitcher gary kitchen's game maker hmm. <laughs> i guess that's the most known one mm -hmm. Okay. That's pretty interesting. Um, how is it with Simbleweed Park? Do you, do you see the same happening or is it nowadays equal? It doesn't matter where people are coming from. I think it's, I think our, if, if you were to go through, I mean, you can look at the, the phone book inside Thimbleweed Park and I don't know the number exactly, but I feel like at least half or more of the names are from, countries other than the United States. Um, you can't always tell by the name. You can, if you listen to the recorded messages, um, a bigger percentage of them have, um, a bigger percentage of them have accents when they record it or they're in other languages. Um, I, I don't know the statistics exactly, but I'm pretty sure that more, you know, a bigger percentage of our audience is outside of the United States. Interesting. So, um, so how was it for you not only working with the team, but working on a new game, Thimbleweed Park? Was that like a flashback 30 years back, designing an, an pixelated um, 
adventure. I mean, um, I've I've mentioned it a lot of times. Actually, back in the days, the graphics weren't so pixelated because the screen technology was so far behind with the CRTs. Yeah, well, we could say well, well, they were they weren't as crisp. That's for sure. They were blurrier. Yeah. Um, but um, it was. Well, it's kind of a funny combination of things. I mean, on the on the one hand, w we were we were doing a game in the style of the games we did back then, but without any of the restrictions we had back then. Um, you know, back then we had restrictions on, you know, how many how many things could animate on the screen, or how um, how many characters could be in a room at the same time, or um, you know, obviously colors, how many colors we could have on the screen. Um, how much memory the game would take, you know, how many sound, concurrent sound effects, all, all those things which were limited by the power of, of the computers at the time, the Commodore 64 and, and, and early PCs, um, just weren't an issue, um, nor was the size of the game. You know, Back then you had to worry about how many floppy disks was it going to fit on because each disk would cost more money. And um, so as the games got bigger, you, you had your you know, your al allocation of how many discs could be, but, you know, now it's all downloaded and <laughs> who, you know, who cares, you know, if it's, a, if it's one or two gig or whatever, I think it's under a gig at, at, in the current, but um, that, that wasn't an issue. Uh, so kind of having all the, and, and plus the time, you know, trying to compile it and download it to the Commodore 64 over, over a serial port from our Sun microstate send micro system workstations uh, meant that every time you made a change, you had like a five minute delay before you could actually test it. And, you know, here you just make a change and hit reload and, you know, in three seconds, the game's back up again. So, you know, all those frustrations from before were gone. So it was kind of like getting to do the pure version of the game without all the, stupid technology of limitations that we had back then um so that was a lot more fun and you know obviously we learned a lot um in the past two and a half decades in terms of game design and and so even though it, it's in the same ballpark it's you know comes from a totally different place in terms of our experience in terms of the technology um i i got to you know the, the idea that you go into a room in this game and there's you know, a bunch of lights flashing on and off like at the circus scenes um you know each light is a separate object which is animating randomly uh, or i guess each no each light is is controlled by its own script to turn on and off at a specific time and um so you have like hundreds of objects and kind of a couple hundred stars that are twinkling each of those are separately scripted objects and you know, the idea of having hundreds and hundreds of objects that, that don't even change the frame rate compared to maybe being able to have two things animating on a Commodore 64 would, would kill it. So that was kind of fun to not have that limitation. So on one side, you don't have a limitation and that makes it funner to actually do some stuff that you couldn't do 30 years ago. But on the other side... It can grow more complex because because you can do more things, so people expect more to happen in the game, right? Yeah, well, there's there's one limitation which didn't go away, which is you know time and cost. So, 
you know, every time you add more animation, it's going to cost more to produce it and to implement it. Um, so that, that was still an issue. Um, so we couldn't just go wild and, and throw everything in there. We still had to consider what was going to, if it was going to be worth it, it was going to move the story forward. If it was going to be, if the animation was going to be, um, fun enough to do it, to, to worth, to be worth implementing. Um, so that's still an issue, but in terms of the technical part of it, it wasn't, um, so we still had to be careful. I mean, we, we're, we, we, we did not have millions and millions of dollars to do this game and, um, um, and we had a limited time, you know, time and money, the same thing pretty much. <laughs> so, so we had to watch out for that and, you know, keep it as tight as we could. You know, Ron was really good as a, as a producer manager on this, as well as, you know, lead designer, um, in that, you know, we, because art is the most expensive part of the game, you know, everything was done in wireframe art first, so we can kind of play through the whole game and get a sense of the the scope of it and how it felt and how the puzzles felt. Um, and then once we got the final art, you know, I could just rewire that in without making huge changes because uh, the code was already pretty much in place. Um, and that meant that we could toss out, um, I think there was a point early on where Ron said each of us had to come up with a list of 10 or 15 rooms that we thought we could cut from the game without affecting the quality of the game in order mm, to keep it, okay. to cut it down. And, um, we, and we did, and, you know, most of the places I think are, are, you know, a lot of overlap in the, in the rooms we came up with. Um, and we ended up cutting about 20, 15 rooms at least. Um, most of, a lot of those rooms show up, or don't want to give anything away, but you, you, you get to see them at some point. Um, but if they're, you don't need, we didn't need them to carry the story forward. Yeah. Um, speaking about limitations, you, you, a few days ago, you actually released the Nintendo switch version, right? Right. Yeah. Talking to a lot of gamers and developers, a lot of people are quite disappointed by how well or how not so well the frame rate is limited by the Nintendo Switch or handled because the hardware is so limited. But I guess you don't have this problem thanks to being an adventure game. Yeah, well, there is there, there wasn't any issue there. Um, I mean, we're also releasing on, you know, the same week we release the iOS and it works really well on even older iOS devices. Um, we're, we're now working, we're almost ready to release on Android. It was supposed to come out today, but we're, we're delaying it a week um, due to, you know, the huge number of Android devices that are out there that require additional testing. Um, so I think the official release date is going to be October th uh, 10th. Um, and that's, as far as I know, that's the last of the platforms that we're currently working on um, to get it out. I'm not really involved with the with the um, ports, so I, I, my work is pretty much done unless a bug comes in that, that happens to be connected to my code, which still happens like every every once in a while. But um, it's you know it's a pretty efficient system. I mean, it's not 3D. It's not requiring a lot of you know CPU power, GPU power to to make it work. Um, so. 
Yeah. And in Simbly Park, is there any joke you included, like the hamster one from Maniac Mansion? Are there any? I mean, in Simbleweed Park, is there any joke that is um, that you put in that is as nasty as the hamster one from Maniac Mansion? Uh, well, there, there's one that I put in. It's not quite in the same vein, but it's it's definitely something which I don't know how many people have found. Um, there is a hamster and there is a microwave, but uh, <laughs> you, you, okay. um, you can't actually... Um, cook the hamster in this game <laughs> it's not something you could do um but there are a few other things that we did put in that are kind of easter egg kind of things that that can happen interesting yeah um were you also involved in this um fill and um chainsaw thing yeah well so uh Yeah, Maniac Mansion. Ron had a chainsaw, but <laughs> exactly. didn't have any didn't have any gas. And the re main reason, I, I think, the chainsaw was initially just supposed to be kind of a joke on the you know something that was on the wall, but he let you pick it up. So then everyone spent their entire game trying to find gas for the chainsaw, and, and yeah, you up again. Sorry. So you said the chainsaw was initially. Um, yeah, so the so in the in Maniac Mansion, Ron was trying to put funny stuff in the kitchen, like you know on the knife. I think on the knife rack on the wall, and put a chain a bloody chainsaw on the wall too, because it was supposed to you know, be like a horror movie type game. And um, you could pick it up, but we never had any gas because then you people would be trying to cut through all the doors, and and it would uh, become this see. major key. So just in, we just couldn't do anything with it. But I guess he didn't realize how frustrating it would be for everyone to have this object there that you couldn't do anything with. So um, that would just became one of the things that happened in Maniac Mansion. But when I did Zach, um, I ended up putting a gas, a, a can of chainsaw gas in a locker on Mars. And um, so there, that's where the gas was, was stuck on Mars. <laughs> so there's a joke in, in Zach where if someone picks up and says, oh, this, you know, I can't remember what it was exactly, but something like, you know, this is, oh, this is um, gas. For another from, game. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for another game, yeah. So, um, I, again, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there is a chainsaw in the movie park. Um, yeah, I think some people will be, be pleased With, with what you could do. I didn't find it yet, so I okay. have to play a bit further, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's anyway funny. I mean, you have so many references to to the original games, and the Commodore 64 especially, you know, and right. um, it's it's amazing, um, especially when, when they ask you about coding knowledge, you know, and... Yeah. Um, so you made a really a lot of references. So that would hint that the Commodore 64 was the platform you you liked developing on the most. Well, I actually liked the Atari 800 the most. And that was that was my first computer that I actually dug into and got to know really well. And I actually resented the Commodore 64 personally because it took over on the on the Atari. And as a result, the book that I just written on the Atari 800 didn't do as well because 
Atari was on the downslide and it was going out. Too so, bad. so that was my personal thing. But you know, if I, if if the Commodore sixty four had been my first computer, I probably would have liked that better too. Um, they're talking about the in jokes. Um, you know, when we for since we were since this was a Kickstarter based game or funded game, um, you know, we felt like we were writing a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the jokes for the for our backers and. I think we probably went a little bit overboard with all the in-jokes and references. And so th- to the point where a bunch of the early reviews called that out as a, as a problem. And so we ended up, you know, a few weeks in adding a, um, an option to turn off the annoying in-jokes or to turn them back on again, actually. So I think we turned them off by default. Oh, so okay. you have to, if you want the in-jokes, if you're a fan of the old games, you have to intentionally go into the settings and turn the, all those in-jokes on. I put them on. I want them. I mean, yeah. I grew up with a Commodore 64. How could I not like it? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you most of, the in, most of these in-jokes were, that we're talking about were, were related to our earlier games. So that was the, the thing that people were you know complaining about. So there's still a lot of jokes, but we just trim down the number um, if you don't have that option turned on. Great. I mean, I mean, I started with Minak Mansion and Zach McCracken, and then, then when I got older, I, I continued with um, with Monkey Island. So mm-hmm. I was totally into Lucas Arts film games. I played a bit of um, King's Quest, but not so much. So I was really much more um, for Lucas film, Lucas Arts games. So. That is why I'm so happy that Zimbleweed Park is true to those people like me who love the old games. And um, but but the thing is, Ron said the next thing wouldn't be um, a point-and-click adventure. So I don't know what your perspective is about that. Do you think it's it's okay that you went back to 30 years ago, but you wouldn't do such a kind of game again? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I I think um, I I would do another. I wouldn't mind doing another one like this again. But I could see that if you do do them back to back, you might get kind of pigeonholed and you know stuck in in that in that time period as opposed to being able to go forward and do something totally brand new. Um, I I think Ron, I'm I'm kind of like that in that I I don't like doing things over and over again. Um, and I think Ron's like that, that, you know, you, you kind of limit your creativity if you kind of restrict it to, um, the same genre or the same type of thing. You can't think out and do, do new stuff. Um, on the other hand, there's, there's commonality in all the stuff that I've done where, you know, I want to make sure there's humor where it's fun, where I'm having a good time or where it's playful. Um, I'm not, I usually don't like doing shooter type games. I only, I think I did two in my lifetime and um, one was fun. The, other, the second one was my worst game ever. Okay. That was, that was, that was not when I was at Lucas. I was at a different company and, and you know, you, you want to try branch out, but you also know what your, what matches with your, your sensibilities and your humor and your, and your, um, you know, what you want to do. Um, and I'd much rather do a game which is story-based 
and requires thinking and has a bunch of aha moments than one which is just, um, you know, shooting stuff. <laughs> so, so um, when you did when you did Simpleweed Park, did you actually go back to your old code? From um, from Maniac Mansion, Zach McCracken, and look at it, or or is Assembler something you never looked back at? No, I don't even have the old code, so I couldn't go back if I wanted to. Um, but I I know that in terms of the syntax that Ron used for the new system, it's you know it's similar to Scum, but it's not the same. So it took me a little while to to remember the new syntax and the new commands that were equivalent to the Winston scum. Um, the concept was the same. So thinking, so the logic part was, was very similar, but the actual typing and what we put down was a little different. Um, the, so in terms of code, there really wouldn't be anything that we'd want to pull from that. Um, and I didn't even play the games again. because I, I didn't want to, I mean, the, the intent wasn't to really duplicate them. I, I mean, there's stuff enough that we remember and jokes from the other ones that we could pull in and that worked pretty well. So did you do, you didn't want to spoil or influence yourself? Yeah, I, I kind of want, we had enough to go forward so we could, we could do it. And then, and then, you know, you'd remember something as you're, as you're adding lines or dialogue for something, you remember something from another game that you just pop in there and that would, that worked okay. That was fun. The reason I asked that during the interviews here, I discover there are two types of developers. One developer type that is saying, I don't have any problems going back to something that I did 30, 20 years ago and get my brain to it again. And then there is a second type that says, I'm I'm getting sweats when I have to look at my old code or look into a sampler again. I now 30 years 20 years old all uh, later i'm not good enough anymore mm. is is what what kind of developer are you do, do you mind going back and relearning things or do you say forget about the past i'm starting um a new thing i don't want to go back i think i'd rather go forward i mean there there's i i'm not you know i was never a computer scientist so i never had any formal training and coding so i think it'd be pretty painful to look at my old code <laughs> it'd probably be like oh my god i wrote that um so i've never okay. actually gone back and looked at it um even within thimbleweed park you know just over a, over a two-year period you know looking at code i wrote towards the beginning of the project could be painful <laughs> compared to like uh, what what am i what am i trying to do so so you know for, you know i usually put enough notes in there so i can remember what i'm trying to do but you know often um you know, when, especially when a bug would come up, you'd say, well, what, what was this? Why we were trying to do it this way? Why we make, what was the choice we made to code it in this way? And, um, you know, it, it doesn't, and I'm, I'm much better now as a coder, especially in this system than I was when we first started. So, you know, you, you build on a lot of tricks, you build, you, you have essentially create a, a bunch of, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lazy typist, so I'll come up with macros that I could type a few characters in, would fill in a, a, a code structure that I could then fill in with myself when I have me to type it. So, you know, I'll look for any shortcuts I can. And if I could steal code from other parts, I would do that. 
um, in generalized stuff. But, you know, because we were always on a tight deadline, it didn't have really, really didn't go back and refactor code um, much afterwards. I think Ron might have done that more often in the engine, but not very often in the actual game part. So is there something, if there is a second Thimbleweed Park, that you would like to make different for a new click and point, uh, point and click adventure? I don't know. I, I haven't really gone to that point to think, what do I want to do next? Um, I'm kind of torn between um, the idea of working with Ron and Gary on another project would be really fun. Um, but I'm also really still interested in augmented reality and in virtual reality. And, um, you know, definitely feel a pull to go in that direction, in which case it's not likely I would be working with them on something. So um, I'm, I'm still finishing up like, the reworks stuff and also finishing up the um, a couple other things I put on hold during the time I was working on reworks in Thimbleweed Park. Mm-hmm. And when I get done with all that, then I'm going to kind of say, okay, what's next? And see where things are. And that's... You know, so it's not really um, not set yet. Um, ah. It's also it's also hard to jump off of a of an intense project and jump onto something else. You kind of want some time to to re-energize and regroup and and kind of let things sit for a bit before you go back in again, which is kind of where I am. And Ron, it's, you know, Ron Ron hasn't even had a Ron hasn't had a break yet. I mean, he's still working hard on the Android stuff. So once once that's done. I mean, you finish the game, and then I remember this at Lucas. We finish a game, and then we'd end up doing being in dealing with translations and ports for like another year. Um, and it, you kind of want to escape from the game, and you're like, "Okay, I want to break. I want to do something else." And we haven't gotten to that point yet. Mm, interesting. Yeah, interesting that you mention virtual reality, argument reality. I mean, that is something that was big in the '90s, and it kind of failed because the technology wasn't fast enough. And now now there is um, this, now there is argumented virtual reality happening again. And now you have the same problem that Google says, Google Class mm, for the commercial market isn't, isn't going to make it. And Cast AR from Jerry Elthworth closing down because of getting bankrupt. Mm. Or or Samsung announcing there will be no no more 3D televisions produced, isn't that kind of a risky field where it could f- fail a second time? Um, I think it's I think you're going to end up with a lot of companies going out of business. I mean that happened in the 90s, say with CD-ROMs. You know when when CD-ROMs first became popular as as a storage medium in the mid nineties, um, all sorts of book publishers and movie companies said, Hey, we could now bring our content to these, to this platform. And all of them tried it. And most of them did not succeed. And a lot of them either, I don't know that they, they're probably large enough that they didn't go out of business, but they definitely closed down their groups to do that. And we're probably in the same place now where there's a huge amount of hype and a lot of people are, companies are going to jump into it and a few of them are going to have some hits and most of them are not going to. And, um, you know, for me personally, um, I, I rarely go someplace because it's 
because it's a, a financial benefit to do it. I do it because it's where my passion would be. So it doesn't make a lot of difference whether um, I end up hitting it richer or not. I'm doing it because I'm having fun doing it. And so in the case of VR, um, it's more of the, you know, thinking differently about entertainment. You know, how do you, how do I take what I know about interactivity and, and immersiveness in games and bring it to a totally different medium? And and hopefully working with some really cool people and coming up with some great ideas to do something really fun. Um, and at some point, I think it will take off. Um, I think that's inevitable. I'm not sure if it's in the next few years. I'm not sure if the cost for the equipment is good versus the quality of the experience is going to hit the consumer level yet. Um, I think within five five years, it probably would. Um, it seems to be shifting pretty fast. When I went to the Games Developer Conference, my take was that there were all these companies doing really cool stuff, um, but it was kind of like um, going to a restaurant and ordering a la carte, or going to five restaurants and ordering a la carte. Like, you know, go to one restaurant and order egg rolls, you go to the next restaurant and you order a bowl of soup, and you go to the next restaurant and order a steak. And, and you know, I couldn't find a, one restaurant which had all the food I wanted in one meal. And so with the VR, there was one company that had a you know, really great um, head, you know, headset. Another one had eye tracking and another one had uh, motion hand, hand tracking. Another one had uh, 3D audio um, headphones. And they were all separate companies and each, each thing by itself was expensive. And what, and each each element was really really cool, but without having them all in, in into one headset by you know as a default, I think it would I think it wouldn't work as well. So I'm, I'm kind of waiting for for um, someone to come up with a, a reasonably priced headset with which has all of these features, which really which I think are essential for it to feel like a really comfortable experience. And that'll happen. I mean, they're just people will buy up the other company companies or they'll license the technology and that'll happen. But it's, it's just a little early. For yeah. Um, well, so we has also another field now. I mean, for example, think about uh, surgery, medical area. Mm -hmm. Not only right. games, because you mentioned game developing conference. But right, what right. about the medical side? Is that in your interest, too? Not, not really. I'm. I think I'm much more focused. I mean, I, I, I'm interested in doing entertainment, but entertainment that helps, you know, that that maybe has a positive impact on people. Um, I'm less interested in just you know scientific or, or health related stuff. Um, you know, I support that, but it's not a personal passion of mine. Um, it's always really been more about the idea of being immersive in a new environment and, and maybe um, giving people the experience of something which they've never had before, which maybe changes them in some way in a positive way where you, you learn, you, you can't get it, you can get it from a movie, you can get it from a book. Um, I think you get much more powerfully from a, an immersive interactive experience. Of course, but then you also have to be careful and not be lost in the 3d environment lost right right you know i mean i mean that is 
that is what is the fear of many people that it would be so realistic that um, you would lose yourself. I mean, I remember kind of that happening the second life, like 10 years ago, 12 mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. from Linden Labs, you know, that was awesome that some people more concentrated on second life than on the real life, in right. a way. Right. So I would I would not want people to lose their relationships and their reality and their groundedness with with real life in order to end up living a virtual world. Um, that that's part of one of the things why I I'm I'm kind of leaning a little more towards AR, where you're not completely enclosed in this alternate universe, you know, where you're you have some experience on top of the current universe, current world, the real world. And do some and have some really cool experiences that way, um, but there, it's so wide open now that um, and, and I think the, the languages or the, the, the constructs haven't really been set yet. So I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, but I do know that I like I want to play in that that whole area. So um, you would love to pioneer in that field as well as you did in um, graphic adventures. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> definitely great well um so that that would basically be all my questions so thank you for answering them um thank you very much for taking the time i'm very happy about this interview okay <laughs> thank you bye bye okay. bye bye so there goes david fox you can check out what he's doing at his website at www.electriceggplant.com and follow him on twitter at david b fox also, check out Thimbleweed Park, which is now available on Steam, Xbox, the Apple App Store, PS4, iOS and Android, and the Nintendo Switch. Check that at thimbleweedpark.com. And again, links to everything we talked about are down in the description below the podcast. Uh, until next time, see you later.